Alright, welcome back guys. For some of y'all, it's probably been a couple minutes. If you really like what you're listening to, you just can't get enough of it and you're devouring click after click after click after click. For some of you, it might have been a day, maybe a week, a month. For me, it's actually been a couple months. So, nice to see you, you know, like three months later. And as I was sitting here thinking about a possible introduction, you know, Christmas has just passed and we're on Beatitude number five. So I really want to do something kitschy and, you know, like five, go on, and then I just lose it because, you know, you can't make that fit a song. Besides, there are enough things that I give people to judge me for. My singing shouldn't really be one of them or my creative prospects and you're like song lyrics. It's at this point that my AP Latin students would give me a tick mark on the board for self-deprecation. They actually kept a tally of those things, but I digress. Alright, so we're on Beatitude number five, which is blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And one of the things I'm using this project to do is slow down, ironically, given how fast I'm talking, but slow down and really try and untangle kind of like a kitty cat ball, a yarn of ideas and thoughts and interrelated connections of themes that I see in my head that all makes perfect sense and lay them out in a cohesive and coherent way and explain them to other people, not necessarily so much to teach, but to present an understanding of scripture, particularly as it pertains to the gospel, that people can therefore take, consider, mull over, and discuss, either with me or with somebody else. And Beatitude number five is a really good crux point, because at this point where we really see what I've been trying to emphasize up until this point, which is some of the massive irony that we see in the Beatitudes. So, again, Beatitude number five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And though obviously... Scripture is breathed out for the instruction and edification, to paraphrase badly, of all people in all places at all times. The full measure of what Jesus is saying is really only grasped when we keep his original, his actual, real-time, butts-on-the-grass audience in mind. So let's look again at the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. I just ended that with a preposition and I'm judging myself. There's another tick mark. So, these people cannot be reduced to, I can't read my notes, ah, there it is, they can't be reduced to an abstract assortment or some kind of nebulous cast of characters who may be anyone and everyone. This isn't one of those deals, it's like the end of a Sally Field movie, maybe that's a bad example, where at the end, you there's a scene in church and you pan over and you see a litany of characters that have been in there throughout the book, and they kind of run the socioeconomic and racial and cultural gamut. The people that Jesus is speaking to isn't arch- aren't archetypes. We can't simply insert everybody in there, oh, because everybody needs Jesus. So obviously he's talking to all of us. Just imagine yourself. No, 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 no. The people that Jesus is speaking to are specifically, as the very end of Matthew chapter 4 suggest, doesn't suggest, makes abundantly clear that these people are those who are afflicted with various diseases and pains. They're oppressed by demons, they're experiencing seizures, they're paralytics, and it's the friends and family who are faithful enough to physically haul their diseased butts from all corners of the region 
to Jesus for healing. These are the people who, by definition, need mercy. The word for mercy here is eleos, or some root thereof. And Blue Letter Bible, and their lexicon at least, defines it as kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. So let me repeat that. I want to reflect that better. Eleos, or mercy, is kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to actually help them. And a couple notes here, well, maybe not a couple, but at least one note here on the miserable and the afflicted is, again, it's not a catch-all psychological term. This is logistical wretchedness, living in poverty and everything about the logistics and the living out of life that that can facilitate and entail. This is physical infirmity and deformity. Yes, psychological mental disease can take part in that, but it's those other aspects that prevent people from physically living a life of a certain kind. And we'll get into that in a second. So, to help illustrate this point, Jesus is traveling to Jericho. And a blind man, sitting by the roadside, cries out twice for Jesus to have mercy on him. And in this instance, it's the, actually the same Greek root, eleos. This man needs help. Well, what kind of help does he need? Oh, he wants his sight restored. Now, leave aside for a second the fact that being blind really kind of sucks in and of itself. And take a look at the man's situation. He's sitting and he's begging. Why is he sitting? Well, he can't move. What? His legs not work? What do you mean he can't move? Tons of people get around with a cane. They feel around on the wall. Shh. The point is that he can't function. Because this man can't walk, run, jump, write, read, swing a hammer, handle a chisel, build, plow, or reap, he cannot function sufficiently in life to work, to produce, to provide, to sustain himself and others, particularly a family. Therefore, he sits, and he does the only thing he can think of not to starve and die. Because he can't support himself. This is why he begs. Well, what is he begging for? Well, money and food, most likely. But interesting, this isn't what he asked Jesus for. No, when Jesus is around, and Jesus finally acknowledges him, the man asks for his sight to be restored. And he does this, presumably, so that he doesn't have to sit by the roadside begging. In other words... If he can move, and he can work, he can produce, and he can thrive, and he can flourish. And so this brings us back to Beatitude number five. Jesus is telling the very people who need such help. He is looking in the eye, the miserable and the afflicted. And he is telling them to show goodwill by desiring and seeking to help the miserable and the afflicted. Again, this isn't curing blindness for blindness sake. The point isn't simply to feel better and have appendages that work. The point is that seeking the type of flourishing life people can live unencumbered by ailments and infirmities and one of the key perspective shifts 
is to not be so self-consumed. Now, I'll come back to well, no, that's actually a good segue. Just consider another example. John chapter five is when we famously meet the man sitting at the pool of Bethesda. So there was a man. Sorry, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Beth, uh, Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for four, thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, "Do you want to be healed?" Now, this is the very kind of a man that needs mercy. He's the exact same kind of situation as the blind man that we just discussed, who accosted Jesus on the roadside. And he's at this pool because he thinks that this pool will bring him the healing to his body that he needs. So that he can live a more logistically flourishing life, and Jesus looks at him, and he doesn't ask him, "Do you want me to heal you?" Well, no, he kind of does. He doesn't offer to carry the man to the pool. Jesus knows what the pool is. He's familiar with this place. He doesn't command others to carry the man to the pool. He looks the man in the eyes, asks him the most ridiculous question: "Do you want to be healed?" And the sick man answered him, "Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up." So interestingly, he doesn't answer Jesus's question. He kind of takes his like, "Are you kidding me? Of course I want to be healed. I'm not even going to acknowledge that dumb question." That was a filter, by the way. And he says, "The reason I can't be healed—that's what he jumps straight to." So I have no one to carry me when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going or trying to get there, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, "Get up, take up your bed, and walk." Now there's a whole lot here to unpack, but what's interesting is that this man, who's in the same position as the blind man on the roadside, is so consumed. Understandably so, and that's one of the things that I fear I'm going to have a hard time explaining. Everything about this man's、uh, infirmity is real and tragic and devastating, and the logistical consequences are real and tragic and devastating. But there's still a massive perspective shift that's required. He's so consumed and defeated. By his condition, that Jesus is actually pressing him on whether or not he genuinely wants to be healed, and this is something that I can relate to to a certain extent because I am a little bit crazy. There's another tick mark, but the friends who know me well enough know that sometimes my mind can move really, really fast, and it's not always in the best places. But a lot of times, I'm so used to having that kind of Let's just call it emotional negativity. That even though yes, I do actually want to feel and be better, I'm so familiar with emotional and psychological turmoil that that's where I normally sit. And it's odd because that kind of familiarity actually prevents us from taking that next step and moving beyond. The familiarity of it, and actually being disciplined to do the hard work 
of getting better. And so here's how this ties into the beatitude. The man might not arguably be doing everything he could to address his own problem. But he's also not seemingly, at least the way the narrative presents it, helping others around him to do the same. He is so consumed by the lack of mercy that he has, he's not showing mercy to others. And this provides a nice segue into yet another story. Consider, if you would, the widow in, I believe it's Luke 17. Jesus is sitting in the temple treasury. It's actually a, uh, it's the women's court. So it's a section of the temple where the women could go but no further. And this is where all the offering boxes would be. About 13 of them. Some of them were for obligatory offerings and some of them were for voluntary offerings. And it's while Jesus is sitting there, people watching, that he notices and then points out this widow who drops some money in one of the offering boxes. Now, there are a couple things to note here. She's a widow, which is not just a comment on the fact that she's unmarried, used to have a husband, and has gone through the trauma of having a loved one die, possibly a single mom, yada, yada. The socioeconomics of widowhood were such that a widow's financial and social position would have been basically destitution. Dirt poor poverty-stricken, destitution, unless she had some other male family member to take her in and provide for her. And so the fact that this woman even has money to donate, well, money at all, is kind of fascinating and shocking to me. I'm sure it's not entirely unheard of to have women's dying, uh, widows dying in a ditch on the roadside. But the fact that she has money needs to be taken note of. That she has money that she's willing to spare is massive. And the parable, well not the parable, the story as it's recorded would really only make sense if this woman were donating her pittance of copper coins into the voluntary offering boxes. Jesus would have no reason to point this widow out for her generosity if she were simply giving what was obliged of her. But she's giving an amount equivalent to that off of which she has to live in a voluntary offering for temple service. Which means she's giving this money for the benefit of others so that the temple can function and do for others, you know, sacrifices and rituals, what it needs to do to have them be in right standing before God. But let's look at some of the other logistics of this. This money didn't come out of thin air. This woman is probably extremely shrewd, extremely frugal, savvy to an extent. She has probably saved, I would wager, this money, which means she is very good at stewarding and balancing what very little finances she has. Her situation logistically sucks, but she's not dead. And she's not sitting on the roadside begging. And she has managed to flourish enough to where she has the monetary means to show mercy to others. And she presumably has the contentment and peace of spirit. See Philippians. 
to be willing to give that money to the aid of others. And this brings me to the thing that I really, really want to say, which as a cisgendered white man, I'm not entirely sure if I can say, and you always run the risk of being accused of victim blaming, and a lot of these other things are complicated. But I was reading a book recently where it presented a situation in which uh, you know certain things happen, and so therefore people behave and respond in certain ways. And what crossed my mind is that, yes, that's entirely reasonable. It's entirely reasonable and understandable. That because of certain external and internal influences, situations, circumstances, logistics, people would therefore start believing and behaving in certain ways. Especially in terms of poverty and physical and mental illness. All these things are reasonable. But they're not necessary. Here's what I mean by that. It is logically consistent that crime follows in the wake of poverty. But it's not necessary because people with wills do not have to engage in crime. And so this is what's interesting if we keep the original audience that Jesus has in mind with Beatitude number five. He's looking at these people and he is saying, show mercy to each other. Help each other. Help meet each other's needs as best as you are able. You've got people here who are willing to carry you here. You do the same for others, such as you are able. No, you won't necessarily heal their infirmities. But you can do a little bit to help improve their quality of life. And then it's also up to us, like the man at the pool of Bethesda, to have a perspective shift. Because I might not make it rich. I might not ever be cured of leprosy. But I can be content and flourish in the presence of God. Because the mercies that he provides every morning, which are new, are the mercies that are needed for me to flourish that day. As I remain at peace and joyful in his presence. At this point, I run the risk of rambling and I really want to just take that horse, which is already dead and just like beat it to a bloody pulp and then like turn it into a hamburger Trojan horse sculpture and like beat it to death again because I can't emphasize this point enough because it's the perspective that so many of us need. There's probably where it ties into all of us. External help is necessary a lot of times and to a certain extent it should be expected. And yes, other people to a certain extent, if you want to use this phrasing, ought to provide it to us. But, at the core of it, we don't necessarily need it. And, it is we, those who need mercy, who ought to show it to others. Actually, now my mind, uh, train of thought just went through one more station. So, swinging this around, Hulu. I've been watching a show called The Resident. Apparently, it uh, debuted in 2018. I'm in season two. But, in season one, I believe it is. Yes, season one, episode 13. There is a situation in which... So, The Resident, by the way, is talking about like a resident doctor. So, the end of medical school. 
there's a woman who's brought in, and she eventually we learn has a brain-eating bacteria that she got from stagnant water at a water park. Anyway, she comes in, and long story short, she is a woman who runs a catering business. Now, it's not necessarily a super successful and flashy catering business, but she runs a catering business on her own, and a lot of her employees are felons. She hires the people that nobody else will hire. People willing to turn their lives around, but probably very rough around the edges. And this single woman, just trying to make it herself, hires them, gives them jobs, mentors them. And it's these very people, those who needed mercy... That when she has literally a brain-eating bacteria and she's in the hospital and the only medicine that will cure her is $48,000 a vial, they all band together with the help of the Atlanta PD because they recognize the good work that this woman is doing and support her. And they somehow raise the cash that they hand in cash in a black bag to the medicine producer when he gets to Atlanta to administer the medicine. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy.